0: everyone, and welcome to the CPPR podcast. I am Purvaja Modak, Research Fellow for International Relations, Geoeconomics at CPPR. Today, I have with me Dr. Jessica Sedon. She is the Global Lead for Air Quality at the World Resources Institute. She is a non-resident fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS, and a visiting research scholar at the Chadha Center on Global India at Princeton, and the Princeton Environmental Institute. She founded and served as the managing director of OKAPI, an India-based strategy group focused on institutional design for social innovation. She is a friend and well-wisher of CPPR. Welcome to this podcast, Dr. Jessica. So on June 17th, 2021, CPPR hosted a webinar on the United States and India as partners in climate action. A Clean Energy Agenda, as part of a project on US-India relations, change, continuity, and transformation. It was co-hosted with the United States Consulate General of Chennai. Dr. Jessica was one of the speakers at this webinar and her insights and view into the US-India partnership on climate action was appreciated by all our stakeholders. But of course, one webinar is not enough to cover such a vast and crucial topic. So we have Dr. Jessica back here with us today to talk about the subject a little more. So as we know, 197 countries, including the US and India, adopted the climate agreement at COP21 in Paris in 2015, pledging to mitigate climate change and its negative impacts by limiting global temperature rise to below two degrees Celsius. The United States withdrew from the agreement under the previous administration, and formally rejoined the agreement in February 2021 under President Biden's administration. The US and India are among the world's top five greenhouse gas-emitting countries. Both countries must align their individual goals to tackle climate change and pursue a clean energy agenda, giving them an opportunity to strengthen their bilateral cooperation for a better future. So Dr. Jessica, in the wake of the pandemic, economic recession around the world, and other global issues, what, according to you, is an ideal clean energy partnership between the US and India that will be in line with the Paris Climate Agreement and ongoing global efforts to reduce greenhouse gas emissions? Over to you, Dr. Jessica.
1: Thanks, and thanks to you and to the CPPR team for having me on for an extended version of the webinar. Um, It's always fun to talk with you, and and this is one of my favorite topics. So to respond to your question, you had two, two clauses in that question. First, in the wake of COVID and the associated economic, social, humanitarian pressures, and second, the ideal clean energy partnership between US and India. And I think those two, those, those two points are kind of inextricably linked um, in the sense that the pandemic creates a particularly difficult context for making a significant transition from energy as we know it, from energy as we understand it, from energy as we've experienced it, to what's really a pretty different and large system that we need to for climate and environmental reasons. The core of any good partnership, I think, is shared goals. And on that, US and India very clearly have a couple of shared goals. First, in mitigating carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gas emissions in the interest of climate stabilization. The second is also a shared interest as fellow members of humanity in advancing energy access for more and more sustainable energy access for all. So I think given that there are these shared goals, the big question is how? And I mentioned this a little bit in the webinar, but I think that the core of a successful and reasonable partnership between the US and India needs to be around innovation that enables both the US and India to use locally available inputs And locally available energy sources more effectively and more efficiently. And I think the Clean Energy Agenda 2030 that was signed earlier this year and some of the the working groups on solar and green hydrogen, the task forces that have come up, are definitely heading in this direction with their emphasis on financing and speeding the deployment of different forms of, of clean energy, also on demonstrating and scaling innovative technology. But I think the emphasis needs on on those points needs to be accelerated to enable India to develop a much more of a local manufacturing and innovation capacity for storage, for uh, the inputs into capturing solar energy, for expanding the local production of green hydrogen. I think that's that's a big piece. The last part of, a, of I think an innovation agenda that I have not yet seen a, a task force on, although one could be in the works, is around energy efficiency. So a watt saved is a watt that doesn't have to be produced. Uh, I think you know, the, the colloquial term is megawatts, But I think there's much that India could do in increasing the energy efficiency around information technology algorithms computing. That is an area of energy use that's enormous. It's larger than some countries worldwide, and it's an area where there are immense savings to be had. I think given India's history in IT and science, I think that there's a, um, there's a lot of potential for successful partnership in that area, as well as the, the more visible solar renewable green hydrogen. So Dr. Jessica, uh, thank you for uh, your
0: interesting comment uh, on uh, what India and the US can do together uh, on uh, the, these different uh, points. And the most important thing I believe is the fi- funds, the financing required to, uh, you know, init- to initiate so many climate change uh, transitions, You know, transitions from uh, coal and transitions fr- uh, to uh, renewable energy. So, uh, my next question to you is You know, that one of the most crucial aspects of the Paris Climate Agreement is that it requires developed countries to contribute funds worth $100 billion, US dollars a year, to finance climate change mitigation initiatives in developing countries. So, it's been six years since the Paris Climate Agreement. So, has this arrangement been working well? And are these funds being effectively used in developing countries? As you said, you know, India has to build some of these capacities and uh, source uh, raw materials that are locally available. So um, are these funds being used to their optimum?
1: So I think, I, I think the Paris Agreement, uh, that Paris Agreement's financial commitments are actually quite hard to assess. Um, this commitment of 100 billion uh, that has also been extended to, um, to to be 100 billion a year until 2025 is important, um, but it has three parts that make it quite hard to actually count and track progress. The first is, that climate finance is not clearly defined. So, what's climate finance? What's not? Uh, that varies between the the providing institution. That varies across countries. So it's, you know, each of the accounting is a little bit different. And some of those choices between different reasonable definitions of climate finance make a difference in counting. The latest assessments that I've seen say that we're roughly in the ballpark of having this level of, of financial transfers, but each are each are you know, somewhat disputed. The second issue is grants versus loans. So it's you know, all very well and good to count a grant, but a loan that has to be repaid, how would that be valued in terms of meeting that financial commitment for a real transfer, not just a, a financing arrangement? And then lastly, there is this provision that the climate finance or these commitments should be new and additional. On top of existing development assistance or other financial relationships, and that new and additionality, as with, um, is again undefined and somewhat disputable. So I'd say overall, the financial flows are probably net net, probably less than uh, less than the spirit of the commitment even if they are meeting the intention, I mean, even if they're meeting the letter of the commitment. But I think the bigger issue is actually their use. And the second part, you know, the other big part of the Paris Agreement, which is the commitment to reduce emissions. There's really no enforcement mechanisms. Uh, the recent assessments of whether those, whether we're on track to meet those commitments, whether the choices that are being made add up to meeting not only the original commitment, but the more the, the the sort of more urgent reduction of emissions that we're seeing coming from um, updates in the science. And that's where I, I think um, there's a book called Ministry for the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson. It's science fiction at this point, um, but what the Ministry for the Future is, is the enforcement arm of the Paris Agreement. And it is an international organization, essentially tasked with looking at and accounting for the follow-through on the commitments. And I think we need something like that. I don't think there's a way around um, ultimately binding ourselves more tightly to actually implementing all of the commitments under the Paris Agreement. And I would encourage anyone who's to, to read the Ministry for the Future just to see how reasonable such an institution could be in the 2020s, much less the 2030s.
0: So, uh, Dr. Jessica, actually, you know, uh, this is the right time for me to actually move from broader climate change issues on a global level to, uh, you know, see how implementation is actually taking place on the ground. So, um, let's talk about a niche aspect of, uh, uh, you know, the broader uh, climate change discussions, and that is air pollution, which is air quality, which is your expertise. So uh, New Delhi, which is the capital of India, suffers a lot of air pollution throughout the year. You know, there are certain uh, points in the year when it's difficult to actually drive around the city. And the situation is quite similar in American cities as well. So how can India and the U.S. work together to counter the air quality degradation of its capital cities and other densely uh, polluted cities uh, around in, in both the countries?
1: Good question, and I'm very happy that, that, that you're speaking about air pollution and climate uh, in the same podcast and the same breath. Um, many of the air pollutants that are most health damaging also uh, affect climate change. And many of the activities that lead to uh, health and crop and environmentally damaging emissions also affect climate. So there's definitely a joint and overlapping agenda in terms of the transitions we need to not just mitigate climate change, but also deliver better health. So one that said, I just wanted to clarify one thing. First is that the air pollution um, is not only an urban issue. Uh, There is substantial rural air pollution. um, It's in smaller cities. And to some extent, it is not always, it, it is, not always determined by local or city level actions. Um, Delhi is actually particularly unlucky given its its geographic location. The Indo-Gangetic plain across the whole of North India basically has, is, is relatively densely populated but also has um, the Himalayas behind it. And so the ability for air to move, to mix, to, actually for the pollution to dilute is very, very limited. Um, so geographically, Delhi, like say Los Angeles or Lima, Peru, or a coastal city, basically cities on plains with mountains behind them has a disadvantage um, that you know, it has to contend with. Um, that doesn't excuse the pollution. It doesn't excuse the, you know it doesn't make it any less urgent. It's just to say that there are some natural disadvantages as well as any choices that are made on the ground. Now, in terms of cooperation, there actually is a fair amount of US-India cooperation, and I would say it's growing on uh, air quality management. So this is happening at a philanthropic level with US-based philanthropies such as Bloomberg, for example, um, supporting the city Clean Air Action Plans. Um, USAID has, uh, actually, I'm part of the Clean Air Catalyst, uh, which is a multi-country initiative, but one of our areas is is in Madhya Pradesh. and I noticed that there's also several new funding programs to look, not just at the technology, but also at some of the governance and regulation and measurement of air pollution to be able to move faster on pinpointing the sources and addressing them. So I'd say the cooperation is there and it's growing. And you know, also in terms of unofficial scientific collaboration, um, there are some of the leading scientists, some of the leading some on air quality and and uh, source attribution are either Indian or Indian origin. And I think that there's an enormous amount of really fruitful intellectual collaboration that's happening in figuring out solutions to um, the pollution we're seeing. Now, what could be better or what would be the direction of a more constructive collaboration that, that leads to faster to cleaner air for more people? I think the attention really needs to go to innovation that reduces emissions. So there's, and which doesn't always look like air pollution action. It looks like sectoral action. So work in transport to, on faster production of cleaner fuels, in manufacturing, of, in uh, agriculture, for example, in some of the sources of pollution that are less well-known, but nevertheless big contributors, um, sectoral innovation to reduce those those emissions at the source or avoid them is incredibly important and often gets left out of the very uh, of the focus on what's labeled and recognized as, as air pollution. The last suggestion, I think, for Im- improving the level of cooperation would be to, to look at some of the science and research funding and make it easier for both India and US scientific funding to fund scientists of different nationalities. One of the the biggest stumbling blocks in putting together these kinds of very constructive collaborations is that science funding tends to be very national and that does not really uh, support international partnerships of the kind that we need.
0: Uh, So, Dr. Jessica, um, one thing you mentioned at the beginning is uh, the implementation of these uh, initiatives on the ground and uh, I'm sure any implementation effort uh, is faced with uh, different kinds of challenges, particularly because there are various stakeholders involved and each stakeholder has their own say and there's so many sectors, as you said. So there is the government, there is the corporate sector, there is civil society, there are different labor unions, there are so many stakeholders to any uh, implementation effort. So um, what do you think are the top three challenges to switching to clean energy options in India at an institutional level as well as an individual level?
1: Oh, that's such a big question. I, I think the challenges are much more institutional than individual. I think if you ask the average person, do they care about where the energy for producing the goods that they use, moving around or powering their lights, fans, house, cooking, et cetera, where that comes from, with a very few exceptions, people would say, I don't care as long as it's available, reliable, and cost effective. So I think many of the obstacles do lie deeper in the institutional choices that have prevented reaching that kind of consumer-facing or user-facing set of available, cheap, reliable. So three things. Um, first, I think it's really hard to ignore the distribution sector and the fact that in a transition to renewable and other and cleaner energy, that the the nature of the distribution sector needs to change from being an integrated utility to being more of a, of a wires business, of a translation between where power is produced and where it's used. And I think that transition is incredibly difficult for um, utilities that are under a lot of financial pressure, that... Uh, are often you know need a fair amount of capital investment to improve the the quality of the distribution network and i think there's 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 really no way to see a renewable energy transition in india without significant additional investment and restructuring of the distribution sector which is really hard given that it's a concurrent responsibility it's a major liability for many states and um it's you know it's it's something where there have been a number of reforms over the last couple of decades that have have you know, moved in the right direction, but just it's it's a tough problem. So that's that's point number one is the distribution sector really transformation. The second is to make sure that we're very clear on energy beyond electricity. So mobility um, shifting either to electrification or hydrogen or another, you know, not liquid fuel, that is a, that's an industry level transition. That's something that's a challenge and an industrial use as well. Um, The fact that India still is, you know, building a lot, there's the, the, the use of energy other than electricity for cement, steel, et cetera. That's an area where the kind of technology innovation that I mentioned earlier would be really important to be able to produce those materials with a lower use of, uh, with, with less pollution. The third, I think, obstacle, I don't know whether to call this institutional or not, is really the fact that some of the inputs into being able to capture and use solar, wind, hydrogen um, are not domestically available. They need to be imported. And that is a, that is a weak point. And I think that, that being able to develop the full value chain for producing clean energy will in turn make it much easier to achieve that kind of end consumer user uh, state of being cheaper, reliable, and available. So those are my three not so small uh, obstacles to the transition.
0: So Dr. Jessica, in fact, I'd like to give you a piece of good news on this. Uh, I mean, if you uh, talk to so many people around India now, you know, in living room discussions, uh, you know, people are now taking transitions to clean energy more seriously. Uh, They are looking at uh, more innovative options to transition to solar. Uh, They want to source, uh, you know, solar panels uh, manufactured in India, and uh, not, uh, you know, look at uh, the raw materials coming from other countries. So there probably is a few, a little bit of change on the ground in India, and uh, we'd like to see more people uh, taking up uh, these transitions and implementing that in their day-to-day functioning. So uh, let's let's hope this uh, transition happens. Uh, I'm sure I know it'll happen uh, gradually, but uh, there is some movement there. So uh, that's probably a piece of good news. So uh, moving back to uh, you know discussions on uh, the global discourse on climate change so uh, you know uh, how can uh, groupings like the g7 or the g20 contribute to global efforts on green energy development can the us and india take on a leadership role at such forums to build a more sustainable energy sector around the world uh, what is your take on that
1: so i think the answer is yes they can i think the the bigger question is what will make some of these forums face forward in actions as well as discourse. The discourse and the, I'd say, political and social acceptability of avoiding climate change is is definitely evolved. We, we see it all over the place that there's a there's a commitment, there's a verbal commitment to face forward and to support greener, cleaner energy. However, on the other hand, when one looks at actions and investments and expenditure, most of the recent analyses, albeit using different forms of information, some are more complete than others, make it pretty clear that the G7 and 20 are actually heading in the opposite direction in the wake of COVID. And this includes relaxing environmental regulations, it includes direct funding to fossil fuels, it includes um, subsidies and support to older energy to older industries, um, aviation transport that are heavily fossil fuel dependent and are familiar. And I think this is understandable given the economic circumstances and the, the politics and just the clear need to be visibly uh, supportive, of people in groups who are under an enormous amount of economic pressure and in a state of fear. So it's understandable, but it's not the right direction. It's not facing forward. It's preserving the past. And I think one of the biggest things that the international groupings can do, the the G7, and to some extent the G20, is to face up to and figure out the domestic conditions for a socially sustainable transition do that, figure out the combination of messaging, of support for families and communities that are in sort of desperate economic circumstances, Um, show how the transition can be made with a number of support policies that ensure that the, the impacts don't fall on the poorest, make these commitments for an inclusive transition actually true. Um, in a in sort of a policy innovation sense and do that themselves and share the findings, share the technologies that are developed, publish the, the institutional design around this. But first, you know, to come back, I don't think this is a, you know, what can they do internationally? I think this is what can the G7 do domestically to, um, you know, not to, not to invoke Gandhi too much, but to be the change they want to see. I don't think there's any there's any there's any way around that. Um,
0: so, Dr. Jessica, uh, thank you so much for uh, sharing your views with CPPR. And with this, you know, we do have a way forward to further the India-US partnership on climate action. And I hope the discussions we had at the webinar and all your insights today will be heard by people at the highest levels of government. And I hope that we will see action on the ground very soon. So I'd like to thank you on behalf of CPPR once more. And we look forward to hosting you soon once again for another engaging discussion on your areas of research. Thank you to all our listeners for joining us as well. You can listen to all our podcasts on our social media accounts. For more research and content from CPPR, including information on the US-India Relations Project, do log in to our website, www.cppr.in. Follow our work on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, and subscribe to our updates on Telegram. Thank you, and we will be back again soon with many more interesting discussions with eminent scholars.
1: Goodbye. Thank you, and thanks for inviting me and having me on.